The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Uh, it is good to be with you all. Um, this week, our lead pastor, Bill uh, McCutcheon, and his wife embarked on their sabbatical. And we've had time of planning, and you can prepare and prepare, and then reality sets in. And so Wednesday, he had, was tidying up his office and uh, tying up loose ends, and uh, I was here, and he came in, and he gave me a big hug, and we prayed, and he left, and I watched kind of car drive off, and I was like, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> um, <laughs> the background, background singers are running the show. Um, so we are glad you're here. Um, we serve uh, a mighty king, and it's not about any person or personality. It is about Jesus, and so it's a privilege to be with you. Uh, we're in a series, second week, looking at our vision and values. Uh, those uh, distinctive things that we pray animate the reality of this church. That we would see live tra- lives transformed by the power of the gospel. That we would be, uh, not, not, not just aspirationally, but we'd actually inhabit uh, the reality of being a gospel-centered community of disciple-making disciples. And so this morning, we're going to look in our next uh, part of this series at, at the little book of Zephaniah. And you may be asking, why in the world are we looking at Zephaniah? And even maybe more so, where <laughs> is Zephaniah? Uh, so before we read that, you, you open your Bible and you turn to Matthew, find Matthew, and then start flipping uh, to your left, and you'll see Uh, um, um, Malachi and Zechariah, and then you'll see uh, Haggai, and then you'll find Zephaniah. It's a little three-chapter book. It's it's a minor prophet. That doesn't mean what the prophet is saying is unimportant. It just means that it's short. It's condensed. And so we're going to look at this particular prophet. But what I want us to see in this passage is, is how the Lord is speaking to these folks. And he begins the book by by speaking of judgment and the day of the Lord and and how he's going to sweep away from the earth all things because of the sin that's in the earth. And so we end, and you'll see this in the the last verse, how the Lord will gather together his people and, and, and they will become objects of renown and praise. And so as we're looking at this, what we're looking at is we're looking to see Jesus. And the book of Zephaniah points us to Jesus. And what it teaches us is the gospel, the same gospel that you find running throughout Scripture of of how God turns people who are deserving of judgment into objects of delight. So we're going to see how God turns people who are deserving of judgment into objects of delight. And we are going to look at a passage that is just a pinnacle of God's assurance of his love and mercy for his children. So would you stand with me as we read God's word, Zephaniah 3, beginning with verse 14 uh, through the end of this little book. The prophet writes, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away The judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again 
fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and the renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. So we look at this little book, this little book of Zephaniah, this minor prophet, and you may be unfamiliar with it, and that is completely okay. But what I want to do is we begin our time in looking at this and how the Lord is renewing us through the work of his gospel is to give you a little bit of the context to the setting of this particular book and the people that Zephaniah was writing to and why this was important for them and is equally as important for us. So the people in this day and age in, in the nation of Israel, this is a 7th century prophet, so it was written in the 600s uh, before Christ. Uh, in, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians and carted off. And so they were uh, being assimilated uh, into that culture. But what we know about the northern and southern kingdom is there was a bit of a rivalry between the two. Because after Solomon's reign, the kingdoms were split. And so you had the northern kingdom that we called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom that was referred to as Judah, or from the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem. And so these folks have seen their sister nation through their idolatry, through their false worship, the Lord had brought judgment upon them, and he had, he had um, brought his displeasure, his day of the Lord. And, and in the beginning of, of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is talking about judgment. And, and, and what they had grown is they had grown a bit complacent. They, they began to think that just because the Lord hadn't judged their sin, that, that maybe it would actually not happen. And so they were living their life in such a way that though they acknowledged the Lord, they didn't live as if he had any impact or influence upon their day-to-day life. And so the Lord is speaking into their existence through the prophet Zephaniah to get their attention, to call them back to them himself. And he is calling them to lead them through this period of repentance and renewal totally restore them so that they would be the people that he desires for them to be. And what we know is that that through that, ultimately the Lord ultimately brought judgment upon Judah because they, though they had turns and might take two steps forward, they would take three steps back. And so in 586, the Babylonians came in and conquered Judah. And so this is the time, and it's important for us to hear so that we would hear these things and that we would hear of God's grace and that we would hear of his gospel. And, and how is it that we move from deserving judgment to being objects of delight? We look at this passage and, and as I think through this, I, I'm reminded in verse 14 of how it talks about singing aloud. 
Earlier, the Lord is saying, be silent. And he's speaking into their lives to get their attention. I think the reason why he's doing that is because their lives have been crowded out with with a chorus of voices. Voices that have come in and and telling them who they are and and, and who the Lord is and who he is not. And, And it's speaking into them. It's telling them how they're worthy and unworthy and what their significance is. And so through this, the Lord is speaking into them to to get them to calm down and to be quiet. And as he is doing that, he is reminding them of who they are. And what we'll see from this passage is he does that in three ways. The Lord enters into and he pursues us in our brokenness. And as he pursues us and enters into our brokenness, then he, he quiets us with his love. And after he quiets us with his love, even before he quiets us with his love, he rejoices over us with singing, with, with sounds of, of affirmation and joy in who we are as objects of his delight. And that we see that through that process that it brings renewal as we learn to sing a new song. And so let's look at this passage and see how the Lord pursues us in our brokenness. How does the Lord pursue us in our brokenness? The Lord, it tells us, it says, the Lord, in verse 15, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And in verse 17, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. In both those situations, it is referring to some some problem. So, So what is the problem? What is this brokenness that the Lord is entering into? Well, in the first chapter, if you flip over a page or two, depending on your Bible, What it tells us in verse 4 of the first chapter, the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. So what we learn from this fourth verse is that these folks had begun to have false worship. They had begun to embrace and practice idolatry. It moves on in the next verse, and it says, Those who bow down on roofs and to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. You see, what had happened is they were giving lip service to the Lord, but they had heard the rest of the nations and the rest of the pagan nations who were worshiping other gods, and, and maybe the Lord hadn't been as quick to answer as they had hoped, and so they were trying to include into their worldview, into their theology, someone else who might actually show up when they wanted them to. And so what we're seeing is this, this chorus of voices uh, that's speaking in, and, and, and these folks who are becoming idolatrous in their practices. Uh, idolatry simply is false worship. And what false worship is, in the, so often in the Bible, is it's worshiping the true God in false ways, ways that he hasn't called us to. You see that after the children of Israel come out of Egypt and they create a golden calf and they're worshiping the Lord through this image. But while we may not have a golden calf, oftentimes what we do is we create substitutes. It might just be something mental. It might just be an association, but we will create substitutes or images as well. Tim Keller in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, talks about idolatry being uh, something where we allow good things to become ultimate things. 
And as they become ultimate things, we begin to look to those things for significance and meaning. And as we're looking to them for significance and meaning, what we're doing is we're beginning to default to those things to form our identity. You see, all of us are guilty of doing this in one way or another. We, we turn to ideas of what the world tells us we ought to do and who we ought to be. And what we do and when we wrestle through that in the courses of the, of the culture that are influencing us and the way that we see ourselves is we begin to say that we're not enough. It becomes a question of our own worth and the worth that we assign ourselves based on what we see going on in the world. And then through that, we, we might say that we're not good enough or we're not smart enough or we're not thin enough or strong enough. We're not athletic enough or rich enough. We're not respected enough or affirmed enough. Our relationships are not enough. We're not funny enough. Uh, all of us, in some ways, if we were being honest in, in those, those moments with one another, we would say, here's where I struggle. Here's why I do what I do. I'm trying to gain something that I think will satisfy a longing in my heart. A few years ago, someone asked me, why, why did I get up early and try to get into the office so early? And there were some practical reasons, but as I thought about it, and the person pressed me a little bit, the reality came to simply being, well, that's what my dad did. And I want him to be proud of me. And so all of us are looking to someone to affirm us. And that's what these children, or that's what this nation was doing. They were looking to other things to affirm them. And they were listening to voices other than God's for their affirmation. In the Hebrew, the word that we, where we say Satan uh, has this close association with accuse, accusations, with accusing. And so what it is simply saying is that it's, it's creating this picture of, of Satan coming and saying, you're not enough. Of reading your sheet of all the wrongs that you've done. And, and as we consider who the Lord is, we, we simply say, I yeah, I've tried hard, but it's just, it's just not enough. And that was what these people struggled with as well. In chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of wrath of the Lord. So often we look to our possessions. And we say, if I could just get a bigger house or just get a nicer car, or we begin to associate folks based on the label on their shirt or on their dress. And we say, this is who we are. But what the Lord is trying to do is step into our brokenness of all these places where we've misplaced our trust and our identity. And he's saying, those will never satisfy. They'll never be enough. That they won't, they won't enable you to flourish. You need to learn a new song. And so the Lord steps into our brokenness. And, and what we see is that we need to be a lot like Jesus and, and begin to ignore those voices of the world that tell us we're not enough. You see, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Satan began to accuse Jesus. And he actually distorted the word to plant a seed so that God, that Jesus would, would begin to question who he was. But he didn't listen to Satan and the lies that he sowed so that Jesus would believe something that's not true. No, Jesus listened to the one who called him beloved. Who said, in whom I'm well pleased. And so the Lord steps into our brokenness. And he enters into our situation and tells us to fear not. 
to, to, to listen to him and, and, and to learn what it means to find wholeness and restoration and fullness in him and ultimately bringing renewal. And as he does that, he steps into those places and he, and he is quieting us by his love. Verse 17. I love that idea of, of quieting us by his love. And I think through that in, in the sense of an experience that I had with one of my children. We, I had taken um, one of my daughters to the doctor and, and it was that time when they needed to get shots. She was still an infant this was a new experience for me as a dad. It's not a fun experience because what you do is you hand over your child to someone who is a medical professional and they, they, they do something for them that, that hurts, but, but ultimately is supposed to keep them healthy. And I remember as the nurse had, had done her duty and had, had, had vaccinated our daughter and she gave her back to me, I didn't know what to do. That's, what, that's a whole nother series, parenting. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Um, and so what did I do? Well, I did what, what my mom had done. And, and so I, I held her near me and I began to rock her and I began to sing over her. I, I don't sing. We've talked about that before. I actually, when I, when, when I have this mic on, I, I make sure that, that the device is off so that there can't be some mishap in the back and I end up singing a horrible solo. I, I, I don't sing, but for my daughter, because I love her and the relationship that I have with her, I began to sing over her. And this, this really beautiful thing happened is she got quiet. She heard the voice, of, when, even in the world in which she didn't understand all the, the frustra- frustrations and the, the surprise and the startledness of a vaccination. The one who loved her was holding her near and she could feel the warmth and, and, and she was quieted by the love of her father. It, it really is one of those moments that I'll never forget. And oftentimes we say that, but guess what we forget? No, this one, I'm going to hold on to this one. And what this picture is, is painting is, is us and our restlessness. And when, when we're listening to all the lies of the world, it tells us we're not enough and we're, we're insignificant and we'll never measure up and all those different ways that we, we're looking for worth. And it comes in and, and it quiets us. The Lord steps into those places and he sings over us. That's the third thing. The Lord rejoices and sings over us. As I was thinking through this this week, I actually was wondering why in verse 17, when he will quiet you by his love, it's sandwiched in between rejoice over you with gladness and he will exult over you with loud singing. And what I realize is in my own world and in the things that I listen to and the way I'm influenced by the culture and by others is that the Lord's going to have to be loud to override all those other messages. And so he, he doesn't just come in and, and try to whisper to get our attention. No, he is singing over us with a gladness, with, with a fullness, with, with all the bravado that he has because he wants to get our attention. He wants to remind us of the one who loves us and loved us first and the one who sought us while we were yet enemies. He wants to remind us that greater love knows no man than this and than he who lays down his life for his friends. That God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The Lord is coming and he is overriding all the voices of the world to to affirm us that, that we are loved, that he rejoices over us, that he sings over us. If you think about in your own life, 
When's the last time someone sang over you? If you're anything like me, you don't like that. You don't want to be the center of attention. But what we, what we know and what, through experience and talking with some folks is that it happens at our birthdays. And it's at our birthdays where people are coming and, and, and they're, they're, they're coming to celebrate us as individuals. Not because of what we've done or what they can get from us, but it may be the one day in the year where they're celebrating that we exist. And so it's in this that the Lord is celebrating our existence and he is declaring that we are beloved and that he is our Lord and that we are his people and that he will never leave us or forsake us and that he will be in the brokenness and he will be in the mire. The Lord will be with us and he is getting our attention. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it. Every day, And so the Lord is moving into those places of, of our, uh, where, where we haven't remembered. And he is trying to remind us of who we are. He is trying to remind us of who we are. That we aren't all those things that the world says we are. Or the world says we're not. But he's stepping into that place and he's singing over us so that we would be renewed. That we would learn a new song. And that we would see ourselves, as the Avid brother says in their, their song, Will You Return? That we would see ourselves as beautiful as he sees us. Now, that's not what they say. What they say is, I wish you'd see yourself as beautiful as I see you. Why can't you see yourself as beautiful as I see you? And I think there's, there's something beautiful about that. Because why can't we see ourselves as beautiful as the Lord sees us? Why can't we see ourselves as beloved? It's because of who we're listening to. Now, yes, the world does seek to influence and the culture is influencing us. But who's the loudest voice you listen to each day? It's your own. And the reality is that many of us don't know how to speak to ourselves. And so we can't speak to others. And because of our own insecurity and because of our own places of shame and because we associate the things that we've done in our past and allow those things to define who we are, we simply say that we're, we're not enough, that we're not worthy. That we're not really worthy to receive love. We're not worthy to be beloved. We're, we're simply not beautiful. And so many of us are out to try to prove that we belong. And I think it's a, a, a lie from the pit of hell and it's something that we all struggle with. Yesterday morning, I was reading this little book. It's called The Imperfect Pastor. I need, I need to read it again and again. And as I was reading it, I came across this little, this little story of George Mallory. George Mallory died in 1924 trying to summit Mount Everest up the North Face. He was 37 years old. When asked why he wanted to climb Everest, he famously answered, because it is there. But in a personal note to George's wife, Ruth, he revealed even more about what drove him to climb Everest. He wrote to his wife, Dearest, you must know that the spur to do my best is you. And you again. And I want more than anything to prove worthy of you. You see, George Mallory, I would, 
I would conclude, struggled to know his own worth. And he needed a higher mountain, and he needed to do what no one else had done because he wasn't able to receive love. What's so interesting about this is it said, George, this book says, George left a meaningful legacy that proved worthy of history's remembrance, but George's son, John, wrote something that challenged this author and challenges me. He's proud of his father, but sad too. John wrote, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero, as some people perceive him to be. The answers George gave concerning his motives have, have confronted my own. The mountain was there, but so was John, George's son. The mountain brought a sense of joy and gave a sense of the human struggle upward for life itself. But George's knowing his son would have brought him joy and a sense of striving for purpose of life too. Climbing the mountain enabled George to prove worthy of his family. But so would have loving and providing for his family in the ordinary routines of life day upon day. So why did George choose to engage the challenges of the mountain but not the living room? And I just read that and I just sort of put the book down as I was thinking through this and and how we're not worthy. And I just began to realize that that what are those voices that we're listening to? What were the voices that that challenged George Mallory to climb a mountain? And this isn't with the gear that we have and the technology that we have. And even when people go to do that today, it's still incredibly risky. You see, I think we're all struggling with the lies of Satan and we have been convinced that the truth is a lie and we have believed that the lie is a truth that we're not worthy. That, that we are objects of shame. But what it tells us is that the beauty of the gospel in verse 19 is that Jesus will change our shame into praise and that we will be the renown of all the earth. You see, it's only through the cross and the work of Jesus, the life that he lived and the, di- the death that he died, and that by His grace and through faith when we believe in that He is who He says He is. That our shame is, is put upon Him and, and, and the judgment that is deserving for our sinful deeds is placed upon Him on the cross. And He is victorious in His, ascent, in his resurrection three days later. And because God cannot punish our sin twice... We are now, because of Jesus, beloved and accepted and worthy and significant because of who we are in Him. And friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. And that is what Zephaniah is trying to get the attention of his audience, and it's the attention that the Lord is trying to get of us. Because until we learn how to speak the gospel to ourselves, we'll never learn how to speak it to one another. We won't speak it to our spouses or our roommates. We won't speak it to our neighbors or our families. And so the Lord is trying to impress this upon us so that we would know who we are in Him. And that as soon as we know who we are in Him and that He loves us and cares for us and pursues us, even in the brokenness of our lives, in the dark places where we try to hide, what we learn is that love is not afraid of what it finds in the dark and that love moves into those places and it brings about healing and restoration and renewal and and the fullness of the shalom that we get through the gospel. And so when we learn how to speak to ourselves, we'll learn how to speak the gospel to others. And when we learn how to speak the gospel to others, we will invite them into this new song that he's teaching us to sing of the song of redemption. 
And when we learn that he delights in us, we won't be concerned about who hears us when we're singing. For we will take great joy in the one we're singing to. It's not about being well known. It's about being known well. And we are known well in Jesus. And we are known well by the Lord because of what he has done. And so, friends, the question today is, who's your li- who are you listening to? What song is animating your life? And who maybe do you need to stop listening to? And who do you need to start listening to? Because as a community of faith, desiring to be a gospel-centered community of disciple-making disciples, what will truly transform us is that when we see ourselves the way God sees us, And when we understand who we are in Him and in Jesus, then we'll begin to want to sing that song to others to invite them into the chorus. And so, friends, what would that look like for our church? What would that look like for our groups? What would that look like for our ministries, to our kids and our students and beyond? What would it look like for our serve ministry? What would it look like for Hilton Head and for Bluffton and the Lowcountry and beyond? What would it look like for us to begin to sing a new song? See, that's what the Lord is doing. That's what the Lord has always been doing. But the problem is that we are hard-headed and we can't hear very well. And so we need the Lord to step in and to sing loudly and to rejoice over us so that we would know the beauty of our Creator and who He has intended us to be in Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We thank You for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you loved us first and that you stepped into those places and that you have called us out of the darkness and into the light. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are no longer believing lies to be true. Lord, would we know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, would we live into that, Lord, for for your glory. Lord, but for the good of your people as well, Lord, that we would be made whole as we're conformed into the image of Jesus who laid down his life for us, who did what we could not do, Lord, who died the death we should have died. Lord, and he was raised to new life, Lord, and we, Lord, we are are the righteousness of God because of what you have done and accomplished in Jesus on the cross. Lord, we delight. Lord, help us to sing. Lord, revive our hearts so that we would know the fullness of your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.